Hello and welcome to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway for Sunday, September 26th. 2021. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a playwright, journalist, and historian with a number of books. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, Broadway Select, Encore Monthly, and many other places. Hello, Peter. Hi. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's the founder and editor of castalbumreviews.com. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at followspotphoto.com. Hello, Michael. Hello. What a brisk, beautiful Mm. autumn morning here (laughs) in New York which is a very odd feeling for a Tony Awards Sunday morning, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. I mean, true. usually mm-hmm. we're uh, getting into an uncomfortable tuxedo uh, That's right. uh, mm-hmm. in, the hu- in the heat and humidity, but it looks like it's going to be a, a beautiful evening over at the Winter Garden tonight. And uh, for a... Um, shall we say, a very different Tony Awards. Mm, <laughs> so, very Peter, different. <laughs> uh, Peter, what are your thoughts on, uh, the, on this evening's proceedings? Well, of course, I'm very disappointed um, the way things turned out as everybody else is because um, this will be the first time that the best original score written for the theater um, is going to have no nominees for musicals. Uh, there will not be any original cast album for any of these uh, five shows that have been nominated because they're all plays. And uh, while occasionally we do have albums for plays, I don't think anything's on the horizon for any of these. So, um, so it's, it's that that's the saddest of all, as far as I'm concerned. Um, if, um, Aaron is, um, not a winner for uh, best actor in a musical. I hope they tell him before the broadcast and just don't name this, um, the category at all and let it go at that because it would be terrible if they opened the envelope and said, no, he didn't win. Uh, but that's uh, the, the arena we're in these days. Um, of course, we're all rooting for Danny Burstein and, um, and I, I really um, hope that um, the votes that were cast for Danny Burstein were on his merit, which is considerable and has been for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So um, so I really hope that that uh, was first and foremost in people's minds rather than what's gone on in his personal life. So um, um, we certainly uh, have a number of um, uh, African-American nominees, which is very heartening. And I'm very glad about that. We also in the best uh, actress in a featured role uh, have um, two old pros, uh, Jane Alexander and Lois Smith. And of course, Lois Smith only had that one dynamic scene in The Inheritance, but it was dynamic. So so we'll see uh, if either one of the old pros uh, can beat the Young Turks that uh, also have been nominated. Um, But. Yeah, between the fact about the Paramount Plus thing and um, you have to subscribe for a while and then you cancel and all that kind of stuff, it's uh, such a discouraging situation. Um, I would have to assume that this is the least excitement uh, for any Tony Awards, even going back to the days when they used to give out compacts and uh, cigarette lighters Mm -hmm. or something like that. as prizes so uh so it's just you know the the pandemic's um roars and um there's nothing we can do about it and um kiss today goodbye and point me to tomorrow (laughs) oh absolutely michael any thoughts about the tony awards 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's to the point where I I'm not scheduled to watch it. I, I have a meeting schedule with a friend who's also heavily, heavily into theater and we're going to uh, a restaurant. And I suppose if they have it on there, we'll see it. But otherwise, we're we're not planning to see it. I, I never thought that day would come mm. at, at the risk of sounding like a broken record. I'll, I'll just repeat what I've said a few times before. Initially, when the pandemic hit uh, and the Tony administration people started to figure out what they were going to do. I said something like, well, this is such an unprecedented situation that any decision they make, you know, I think we have to um, uh, not be too harsh, you know, in, in judging them. And, 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 and they're, they're just trying to do the best they can under the circumstances uh, because people started sniping about it from the beginning. But then, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry to say, I, I think that what they decided in terms of what shows would be eligible, um, what people would be eligible, when the Tonys would be held, and then, then of course, the decision to have the bulk of the telecast not on free TV, but on Paramount+, Plus. I, I just think that they couldn't have made worse decisions and it's resulted in uh, the, this situation where I really don't think I'm going to watch them as for Aaron fate. I, I, as I said earlier, I, I do not think they, they will allow it to happen that they will get up there and say, Oh, he didn't get enough votes. So we have no winner. I, you know, they will do anything to avoid that happening. Uh, so, but he shouldn't have been put in that position in the first place. There are many ways to avoid that. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, you know, it's, you know, we, we'd like to think that people who run things know what they're doing, but so often they don't. And I really think this is a horrendous case of people just making terrible, terrible decisions about uh, about every aspect of the Tonys. So uh, I'm sorry, but that's how I feel. And I, I guess I, I can take uh, Peter's mantra as well uh, and say, kiss today goodbye and point <laughs> me towards tomorrow. But, but in my case, I think I feel like I've almost already written this one off. Um, it does sound like um, two, uh, two things. Uh, this, this is kind of late, but I've been reading that one can get a, f- a free seven-day trial to Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah. Uh, um, so for you can take that information and use it as you wish. Um, uh, but the other thing is I, I, I've read that some of the musical numbers that are promised sound like they're going to be quite wonderful, uh, including Jennifer Holliday, doing and i'm telling you i'm not going and i believe audra and brian stokes mitchell singing from ragtime and also i believe uh, Kristen chenoweth and indy de menzel singing from wicked so uh one might want to watch that at least that portion of the the telecast for for those reasons alone well for that matter <clears throat> um statistics do show that indeed People watch the Tonys first and foremost for the entertainment, not right. uh, the winners. Right. I mean, the statistic is like three to one. Mm. Um, it's it's really really impressive. Um, so so yes, that's a very good point, and um, I, I should temper my remarks by that. I'm glad you brought that up because um, yeah, whatever happens, that's still going to happen. So uh, Tony Janicki points out that uh, it's quite easy to get a Paramount Plus uh, today for free for the seven-day free trial. Um, The Broadway's Back uh, event 
um, on CBS, which I, I think is still available for free. <laughs> uh, the CBS on your on your television on Channel Two here in New York and other channels elsewhere around the nation and uh, hopefully internationally, uh, folks were able to see this as well. Um, the Broadway's Back concert, as Michael pointed out, is going to have quite the lineup, and they're going to do the some large announcements uh, on uh, on that as well. So. I think that, uh, as Peter says, people um, like to see um, these uh, the production numbers on the Tonys and uh, plan their trips accordingly. And uh, this will be this will throw you know five years from now, ten years from now, great trivia questions as to uh, which person got two Tony awards in one year, you mm. know, type of mm-hmm. thing. Because <laughs> hopefully, we'll have another one. In June, another Tony Awards for the shows that are the the many many shows that are o- that are opening and scheduled to open uh, right now. You know, I, 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 two in one year reminds me of something else entirely. Um, I'm doing a new book, uh, and um, one of the things I'm pointing out is that uh, in 1955 there was still the Donaldsons Awards. Now the Donaldsons were given out by Billboard magazine. They're the ones who started in 44 and it ran till about 56 when they figured, oh, they got the Tonys now, the hell with it. So anyway, um, in 1955, uh, the winner of Best Actor in a Musical was Cyril Richard for Peter Pan. And the winner for Best Featured Actor in a Musical was Cyril Richard for Peter Pan. (laughs) He won both awards the same year. And uh, Billboard has a phenomenal website where you can see every issue ever. And um, there's you go to that issue on July 9th, 1955. And I am telling you, there is two enormous articles written by a guy named Bob Francis, who actually started the awards, uh, telling you what happened. And they even tell you who finished in second, third and fourth, fifth place. It's really interesting to see that Cheetah Rivera got a fifth place nod for the shoestring review. I mean, but the point is, she was noticed. And that's really impressive to me. But in this whole big thing about um, really pages and pages on the Donaldson Award. No mention of, isn't it funny that uh, he won in two categories? It doesn't tell you how he got in two categories. It doesn't tell you why people didn't say, just put him in one category. Nothing like that. There's no explanation whatsoever. But anyway, um, the two in one year reminded me of that. Um, but of course, I mean, just correction, it's not technically, it's not two in one year. No, uh, but, but, but I, it's just I, I that the, the, the amount of time between <laughs> right. the two awards will be much less. The shortest, than, the, the shortest yeah, ever, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, what, what, which calendar are you using, Michael? I, I don't <laughs> no, use some sort of Gregorian, you know. Two in one season. <laughs> right. You're so two correct, in one Michael. season. Yes, yeah. so correct. <laughs> so, um Let's move forward. Uh, last week, Michael uh, got a chance to see Dear Evan Hansen and the talkback at the 92nd Street Y. Peter, you have now seen the movie of Dear Evan Hansen. So tell us uh, what your thoughts are. I don't understand all the hatred for this picture. It makes Thank you. no sense to me Thank at you. all. Um, I, I thought it was really quite fine. Um, I did miss the missing songs. And it does seem to me there was a concerted effort not to make it too musical, uh, lest um, so many people in the uh, out there get uh, turned off by it. But 
I also um, enjoyed Ben Platt's performance more here than I did on stage. I always felt like he was pushing on stage acting. Um, here, I really believed him. I credit the director, Stephen Schwarzky, if that's how it's pronounced, for pulling him in. Um, I'll give credit to Platt, too, of course. Um, his having played the role so many times has allowed him to fully inhabit the character now and not just assume the facade of the character, which is what I really thought he was doing the first time I saw him. So um, now all this stuff about his being too old. All right. I have to admit that so many times I will say to uh, young people, so you're in your 20s, I guess. And they say, no, 30s. So it may be because I'm so old, the people look so young to me. <laughs> but I got to say, it didn't bother me for a tenth of a second. There was yeah, it did bother me for a tenth of a second. There's one scene where he's jogging and he looked old to me. But aside from that, I did not understand that whatsoever. And again, that may be because of who, who I am and uh, all I've been through. But but I didn't even feel that was a factor. Um, I also greatly admired Amanda Stenberg as Alana. Now, on mm -hmm. stage, I really felt the actress was so transparent that she wanted to use the Connor Project to make a name for herself, that this was the way she was going to become famous. And everybody's going to think, oh, this wonderful girl. And isn't it wonderful she's doing this? While her motivations to me were crystal clear that she uh, did want to make a name for herself. But here, that's just enough under the surface for us to suspect rather than know that. So, um, but, you know, my, my issue with this property um, in terms of defending it has always been some dislike this musical because Evan tells one lie after another. Yes, but will you consider his motivation? And it's, I really paid attention to this moment in the movie. I really want to see it again. After Connor Murphy's suicide, Evan sees how the boy's parents are grieving. He wants to alleviate their pain. So he tells them what they want and need to hear. And he doesn't do it immediately. No, he doesn't. <laughs> and he that... says, no, I, I'm sorry he didn't write this. He I, he was not my friend. Yeah, I mean, really. And and only when they keep pressing him and he sees that it's, it's what they need. I mean, it shows that he's a good person to me. Absolutely. <laughs> His lies come from a noble place. And Evan has a heart which is why he wants to help the Murphys heal their broken ones. So I liked it. Uh, and um, I'm, I'm just flabbergasted at the reviews I'm reading. Um, so I'm, I'm, Michael and I are on the same page. It doesn't mean anybody else will be, but I hope you will be. I hope you will be. Don't you find it incredibly ironic how the reaction to the film mirrors what happens in this in this? I know. Movie? Yes, that did I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, there's a point where everyone is, you know, everyone is with Evan because they think he, you know, he befriended Connor and uh, he he speaks movingly of him and he they're doing all these tributes to Connor. And then when um when everything starts to f come out and fall apart, uh, actually in the movie, uh, I think we should mention, uh, um, now I think this is right. Correct me if I'm wrong in the, in the, uh, movie, they, they don't, it, it comes out to the, to Connor's parents that there was a lie, uh, but mm -hmm. not to everyone, not to, the world. Um, I got that impression too. Yeah. But that's different in the mm -hmm. show. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, at any rate, it's been um, a long time, you know, since in, yeah, the show. anyway, mm -hmm. in the movie, uh, everyone, everyone turns suddenly turns on Connor's parents 
for a, what I thought was a ridiculous reason. But it's all this it's it's this virtue signaling thing. And I, I am I'm flabbergasted on how everyone is focusing on uh on Evan as the villain. Do you know that the New York Times review of this movie actually yeah. said it turns a villain into a victim? Yeah. I don't see how you could see him as either. Mm-hmm. I agree. Either a villain or a victim. I agree. You know, as you said, mm-hmm. uh, how many people think it's r- really think it's that bad if you're sitting there with the parents of someone who's just killed himself mm. and uh, and they think that that you were the only friend of their son who just killed himself and the mother starts crying and uh, uh, Mm. losing it right Mm. in front of you. Mm. And, you know, and, and you're supposed to stick to your, uh, the truth and say, um, no, I'm sorry. It's a misunderstanding when you could just easily say, uh, well, yes, yes, we were friends, friends you know, yeah. and, and to make her feel better, especially since are, do all of these people who hate Evan Hansen, do they think he knows from the beginning? Oh, I'm going to do this right. because then I'm going to ingratiate myself <laughs> right, yeah. to this family right. and they're going to love me, uh, whereas I don't really have a family now. And also then all the kids are going to like me because I, you know, because they think I'm, I was yeah, Connor's yeah, friend. It's, yeah. It's, 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 not remotely in his purview. <laughs> How can it be? Who saw that, that would coming? Be, people have described him as Machiavellian. That would I know. Be, that would be Machiavellian <laughs> if he had all that in mind, you know, from the beginning. Sure. And with, that was his goal. But it's not. It's just simple humanity. So I think this virtue signaling is absolutely ridiculous. I do. Too. And I am going to tell that to anyone <laughs> who 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 says what a horrible person Evan Hansen is for for lying about. Uh, you know, this right now, what he does after that, you know, it's, it's just supposed to be a case of snowballing and yeah. we could, we, we can't examine everything that happens in the movie. And in yeah, the show. Yeah, yeah. But, but anyway, that's how I feel. Yeah, I, the, the, I, the, really um, a couple of things um, I'll add here. Um, I'm sorry to say that I've known plenty of people whose kids have committed suicide oh. and, and when I talk to them after I know that this has happened, um, it is so difficult to say anything. Sure. You, you have sure. no idea what to say. Sure. I mean, I made, I made the mistake once of saying, I know how you feel. And the father actually said, no, you do not know how I feel. <laughs> and of course, he's right. You know, but you, you just default to things like that. You just don't know what to say. So put on the spot like that. And you're just so confused because you're being hit with this information that you didn't see coming. You know that uh, he, he didn't write the note to you, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's a big problem there. Um, and uh, really, under the circumstances, I don't know how anybody can really feel that a young kid especially can handle this um, with so little life experience. And of course, he's a very introverted kid. And, I mean, he, has, he doesn't have friends to speak of. Um, and... So he doesn't have great social skills. So put on the spot like this. The other thing, um, it's a strange analogy, I'll grant you. But if you watch the movie, since the play doesn't, well, it was done a few years ago, not successfully, Cactus Flower. I know it seems ridiculous to bring up Cactus Flower in this context. (laughs) I understand that. But if you watch the Cactus Flower movie, 
uh, you will see that one lie needs to the next and to the next and to the next. Mm. And the point of cactus flower is you better not lie because, you know, you, you better have a good memory on what you've said and all that, um, or else you're really going to be in trouble and you're going to uh, paint yourself into a corner. That's a comic version of this. But nevertheless, the point is well taken that lies snowball, that um, it, it doesn't just end with one lie. And it, both of them, strangely enough, come to the same conclusion. It, our cautionary tales don't lie. That's part of it as well mm. yeah and um so anyway um uh, michael and i will go to our graves defending this picture <laughs> so uh so be prepared if you meet us anywhere uh don't be surprised if we lecture you on dear evan hansen the way we've been doing right now james i assume you haven't seen it yet all right so i have not seen it yet uh but i uh aside from the high esteem that i hold the two of you in uh <laughs> Peter Marks tweeted that uh, he tweeted, sorry, but I like the Dear Evan Hansen movie. And it started a raucous debate on Twitter about it. Wow. Good <laughs> uh, for him. But Peter Marks mm -hmm. really enjoyed it. A lot of people came to his support and uh, a few thousand people uh, engaged in this conversation with Peter. Uh, it's the piling on. If, if yeah. people honestly hated it, you know, on their own, uh, that would be one thing, but it's the piling on, uh, the mob mentality, yeah. and then also uh, the virtue signaling. You know, it's like, oh, I would never tell a lie. It's mm -hmm. bad to tell a lie. Mm -hmm. I would never do that under mm -hmm. any circumstances. Mm -hmm. What mm -hmm. a horrible person this is. Mm -hmm. Did and you guys, feel did you guys uh, ever watch the television show House? No. I know the, the whole premise Not of house is everybody lies. Is that right? that, that's that's the, the, you know he's a doctor. He, he he's basically Sherlock Holmes in the medical field. That's why the, he's his his name is House, and uh, basically he never believes anything a a, a patient says. Wow. He's like everybody lies, and and it <laughs> nearly always becomes true. So let's move forward into yeah. <laughs> uh, our next thing. Peter, last week you talked about Sanctuary City. That is a New York theater workshop um, uh, production that's playing over at the Lortel. And I got a chance to see it uh, this week, and I had to second what you were saying. I really loved the show, uh -huh. and I really hated the device up front. Yeah, and I was yeah. like, how is this possibly going to yeah. happen for yeah. the whole show? Yeah. And I'm going to hate this. Um, but it uh, it was really, really good. And I'm yeah. so sad that it's closing. So I wanted to... I don't have anything additional to add from what you said last week, other than it's got another week and a half, two weeks or so. Go, everybody go see this. Yeah. But when I was and there... If you come late, don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if they'll seat you if you're late, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when I was there, they were, there was a three-camera shot happening. So, oh, I'm uh, in Lincoln Center, I guess. So I, it was very professional three-camera shot happening when I was there. Uh, so, uh, and I, these actors... Just, mm. just oh. amazing. Oh, yeah. I really uh, can't wait to see what we're going to see next. Uh, it's at uh, J-Sci, Chase Owens, Charlene Cruz, and Austin Smith. Mm. Just, mm -hmm. I, I, I loved this production. Mm. I'm so sorry mm. that it got interrupted by COVID, and I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to if this three-camera shot's going to be available somehow to the general public. You know, um, uh, I was walking to um, the Connolly Theater to see Persuasion, and um, as a result, I, I was walking past the New York Theater Workshop, 
and thinking, you know, do we really have we really given James Nicola his due? Um, you know, here he is. I mean, he's, he's retiring and he's been there for a long time. And the things he has done and made happen uh, is, is just astonishing. So uh, and of course, rent being one of them, but not the only one. Hadestown being one of them, not the only one, but uh, taking chances on so many Wild and woolly things, uh, Ivo Van Hove. I, I, I don't know if he got his start in New York there, but he certainly <clears throat> established his reputation there. So, um, so really, uh, James Nicola has been so quiet in terms of being uh, one of those artistic directors. You know, it, he's not a glad hander. Um, mm. You don't, you don't, you don't see him. Uh, cottoning up to people for money in the worst sense. I mean, obviously he must, but nevertheless, you know, really um, quite a guy. And um, it's it's really going to be a loss. And whoever takes over that job is going to have a real hard act to follow. Yeah. So you mentioned you are on your way to persuasion. Uh, Bedlam Theater Company is doing it. So tell us about that. Well, um, <laughs> Bedlam really does uh, honor its name. <laughs> yeah, they really are, are wild and crazy in the best sense of the word. And I have to say that um, one of the best things about uh, Bedlam is the imagination they bring to their projects. They really um, work very, very hard to say, okay, how can we make this look a little different from um, the way that anybody else would do it? One example out of dozens in this production, and one of the reasons doesn't, to be frank, it's two hours and 35 minutes, so they have a lot of time to uh, be creative. Um, there's a scene where uh, two people are riding into town. Now, this is a Jane Austen property, so they're not in um, a Volvo. No, they're on a, a horse-drawn carriage. And of course, yes, you expect that you're going to see them bumping up and down a little, lifting uh, their gluteus maximus um, up and down a little, you know, so they can um, replicate the idea that they're uh, riding in a very uncomfortable situation. They're going over, they're not on paved roads, needless to say. But what was really lovely is they have a guy holding a big branch of a tree. And <laughs> what he does is swing the branch back and forth in, in a circle. And the point is it represents all the trees they are passing. So it's that type of thing that Bedlam is famous for. Uh, and there's um, uh, quite a few of those little touches in there that um, are really marvelous. Uh, the story is about Anne Elliot. Anne Elliot fell in love with um, a sailor. Well, I mean, this is high class England. You don't just fall in love with a sailor. Are you kidding? And the persuasion um, actually happens before the um, show starts. She is persuaded to drop him because he just isn't good enough for her, says the family and her um, surrogate mother. Her mother uh, is died and a woman has taken over and she's going to guide her. And her advice is, you don't, you don't get involved with a common sailor. Are you kidding? So now it's eight years later. And he is now Captain Wentworth. He has really risen <laughs> in the ranks. And everything that she believed that he was capable of has turned out to be true. So she has real regrets that she was persuaded. So uh, now the other thing is her father, of course, was dead set against her marrying the sailor. And um, he's just not good enough for us. Well, as time has passed, we find out that the father isn't good enough for the world because he owes quite a bit of money and they have to leave their sumptuous home in London. They have to go to Bath, um, which is um, not nearly as uh, hoity-toity a place. And yet the father still uh, has this um, condescending attitude. So he's still putting people down, even though we realize he has no right to put people down considering what he's turned out to be. 
So anyway, Captain Wentworth comes back into her life. And will they get together? Won't they get together? In fact, there's a wonderful scene where she's she's led to believe not by any she infers. It's not implied as much as she infers that he got married. It's a wonderful, wonderful, tiny scene. But boy, Ariel Yoder as Anne Elliott. Terrific performance. Really quite wonderful. But more to the point. Um, there's uh, a, a character, um, Charles Musgrove, who's very silly, and yet um, Jamie Smithson plays him wonderfully comic, but he has to come back as a different character later in the show, and is a very serious, uh, grounded character, and he's equally effective. It almost seems like it can't be the same person uh, who's doing it. Um, a, a little tip of the hat, well, more than the tip of the hat to Sarah Rose Kearns, who actually did the adaptation of the James uh, Jane Austen novel. And um, she's also the understudy for Anne Elliott. And it might be fun to see her. But uh, if you go, you really want to see Ariel uh, Yoder, who's really quite terrific. Since we're on Jane Austen, who certainly is still a presence and has been for about 25 years now. I mean, the renaissance of Jane Austen has really been tremendous. And... Um, I'm still amazed that nobody, not Musicals Tonight when it was in existence, not the Mufties, has ever tackled First Impressions, the um, 1958, I think, musical version of Pride and Prejudice. First Impressions, by the way, was the working title that Jane Austen gave Pride and Prejudice while she was writing it before she said, no, I think I'll call it Pride and Prejudice. You know, interesting Jane Austen, there's a musical. Here are these little companies around town. Will somebody do First Impressions? Uh, yeah, it's not bad. I, I don't think the score is um, an A. I'll grant you that, but I don't think it's any worse than a B. And uh, with the interest in Jane Austen, I would think there were people who want to see it. And Lord knows there have been many attempts to do Pride and Prejudice as a musical since then. So uh, any of you out there starting little theater companies, you might be wise to look at first impressions because um, it, it might get an audience given the fact that it's Jane Austen. And I will never forget reading the script on the subway. And the woman next to me said, Pride and Prejudice is a musical. And she just inferred <laughs> that from the vantage point that she saw capital letters for all the songs and she recognized the character names. And I thought that was quite terrific, you know, that uh, she was able to uh, put two and two together like that. So um, I get the impression that she might be interested in the musical version of Pride and Prejudice. And I bet she's not the only one. So little theater companies take a look at it. I think it's uh, a Concord um, show. Or what isn't these days? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Concord. Yeah. So that's a whole other podcast. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Michael, you got yes. to see a production of Case Closed, the Dorian Corey story. So tell us about this uh, play at the Gene Frankel Theater. This was a very pleasant surprise. I went to it primarily because I knew someone involved with the production and I didn't know what to expect uh, from, you know, such a small production by written by someone I'd never heard of before. Uh, it's a new play by Jeffrey S. Jones. That's it's a fabulous new play. That's what they bill it as. It's a fabulous oh, yeah? new play well, by Jeffrey S. Jones. Yes. <laughs> and by mm -hmm. the way, it's J-E-F-F-E-R-Y. Um, uh -huh. mm -hmm. uh, and it's about the, the, the central character is Dorian Corey. Uh, you may not know the name. He was quite a famous drag performer, primarily in the 80s. And uh, even if you don't know the name, you might 
have actually seen him in the film Paris is Burning, which was about all of the the drag balls, uh, this whole subculture uh, that that used to be this quite elaborate subculture of of, of um, people who would put on these very, very elaborate drag balls uh, in New York City. And uh, he's one of the he was one of the heads of one of the houses. Uh, uh, the, the, all of the drag queens had their, their separate houses and they would put on these performances. Uh, and apparently it was quite something. That's a great movie. If you've never seen it, you might want to catch up on it. But uh, aside from whatever fame he got from that, the real life Dorian Corey later had a, a very different kind of fame because after he died, it was discovered that there was a mummified corpse in his closet. Um, and so that was actually uh, the subject of a cover story in New York Magazine. Uh, that's how famous that became. Mm -hmm. uh, and this play is all about that. Uh, Jeffrey S. Jones knew Dorian Corey personally, and he, and he wrote about that. And it uh, explains what um, actually how that that corpse ended up in that closet uh but it's it's also i would say it's primarily a character study of of all of these uh, people that dorian Corey took in and it's uh, uh i the the pleasant surprise was that i would say this was very 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 well written overall um uh, I, I did not think it was well directed by someone called Lawrence C. Schwartz. And there were some problems in the script that I think could have been easily addressed by a, a dramaturg who, who knew what they were doing. And I, I would advise Jeffrey S. Jones to continue with this play and to maybe get try to find a really good director and a dramaturg to help um, hone it, because I think it's really wonderful. It starts... Um, uh, it's framed as a flashback. It opens with uh, a drag at a drag show at a New York City bar in 1994, and Dorian is performing. And then, uh, then there's the discovery of the corpse after Dorian dies. And then there's a flashback to uh, Dorian's fifth floor apartment on 125th Street in Harlem in 1967. And there we see uh, how he took in all these various types of people from the streets, basically, who, who and uh, let them live with him, um, various drag queens and, 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 and other people on the fringes of society. And then we eventually find out how uh, the person who wound up dead in the, in the closet, how that person came into their lives and how that all went down. But very, very, very interesting. Um, uh, the acting I would say, even even though I, I I did feel that the direction was was lacking, the acting was uniformly excellent by Isaac Dean, Jake Thomas, Scott Weston, Spencer T. Gonzalez, Frank Muni, Arlen Alexander, Grant Hale, and Kasimi Ben Fofana, and two of these guys I, I have to single out. Um, it's it's so fascinating when you read bios of, of people, especially people who are not necessarily professional actors or, um, or who only recently have become. Uh, this guy, Jake Thomas, who played the detective who's, who's questioning one of Dorian's cohorts at, cohorts at the beginning, it says, um, this is Jake's theatrical stage debut. He was born and raised in New Orleans. 
from an early age, he was enamored of the theater and dramatic arts. Jake is a fitness model and has been featured in a beach body and tough mutter streaming video series, Men's Health and GQ. Uh, Jake was also featured in Universal Soldier, Day of Reckoning. Additionally, Jake is a summa cum laude and co-valedictorian graduate from the Fashion Institute of Technology and a master's of business for veterans graduate from the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business, where he was a Salute Veterans National Honor Society member. So he, uh, he was also a Marine, and now he's a real estate agent. <laughs> and, and here's this guy on stage, and this is his stage debut. And he, you know, he was very raw, but I, you know, he really could have had a, a career and could still, uh, he, he's still quite a young man, despite all those accomplishments. I immediately, as soon as he came on stage, I thought it's too bad he wasn't around when NYPD Blue was on. Uh, but of course, um, uh, uh, what do you call is still on uh, Law and Order, uh, mm, although I yeah. don't watch it. So I, I, I think he could probably get a, a slot on that. Um, and then this other guy, uh, Spencer Gonzalez, um, who uh, is uh, um, a, a recent graduate from Manhattan School of Music. Uh, he played a double role in this show. And there was another case where I really did not realize it was it, he, that he was it's actually not a double role you think it's a double role but then it turns out to be the same character and i and i won't get in there further but he changed his appearance his voice his body language so greatly from one to the other that i was absolutely astounded and uh you know as a very recent graduate of that school obviously he's quite young i think he's got a brilliant 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 career ahead of him all right so we'll have a link to uh, that in the show notes. It's running through October 10th. Oh, I don't want to be remiss. Uh, one of the uh, there was also a, a very late replacement in the cast. Uh, so one of the names I read was not correct. The role of Bobby is now being played by Matt Braddock. And uh, I don't know the circumstances behind that, but he can't have had much rehearsal. And uh, he he was, you know, a little weak. But there again, um, you could tell that the talent was definitely there. And and I would almost like to go back and see it after he's got a few more performances under his belt. Okay, Peter, so you saw a commercial jingle for Regina Comet down uh, at the DR2. It's a new musical at the DR2, so tell us about it. Well, <clears throat> this is Merrily We Roll Along meets title of show, <laughs> and they get along once they meet, um, I'm happy to say. So Alex Wise, who is best known as an actor, uh, he was in um, Lysistrata Jones and, and Spring Awakening, the revival, and Ben Fankhauser, who um, certainly uh, we noticed in Newsies, got together and wrote a show. And it is much like title of show in that it's about two guys who want to write um, and be successful. But um, their opportunity comes as a result of uh, Regina Comet, um, who's um, had success along the way. And for a long time there was um, quite a... Um, Quite a success, but you know um, these are tough times now, and um, she's she's really looking to um, change her image and get something good happening. And as she says, the reason she wants these guys to write for her is because 
they charge the least money of anybody she's talked to. So <laughs> she's very frank about that. And <laughs> that's good enough for them. They don't care. They see it as an opportunity. So whether uh, they'll succeed or not succeed is what's going on here. But of course, there are romantic complications because uh, Ben's character um, seems to get emotionally involved with her. And he seems to be the leader of the two um, under those circumstances. That's that's the interesting concept. And I do believe that um, that happens much too often where whenever there's a team of writers uh, that the person they're writing for gets more interested in one person than the other and uh, essentially appoints that person, the leader, even though the two guys might not have even decided between themselves, which one is a leader. Um, so that's going to involve some complication and conflict. Uh, so um, the lyrics are quite, quite good quite, quite good. And, you know, I'm going to mention rhymes. There's even a, a, a reference to a rhyming dictionary in the show, and you can tell that they've been using it, you know, so I, I think that's really quite great. Uh, so the craft is uh, really close to 100 percent, which is um, amazing. And um, and the two guys are very endearing, um, just, you know, a, a little on the nerdy side, and uh, they play that up. And um, we also have to mention Briona Marie Parham, who, of course, was quite sensational in Prince of Broadway. And um, and she uh, from going to the prince, she's now quite the queen. She's really excellent in the show in showing the type of ego and not overdoing it, never making it a caricature. So um, a perfect show, certainly not, but nevertheless, an entertaining one. And um, uh, I, I, I can recommend it. Okay. So uh, commercial uh, jingle for Regina Comet is playing down at the DR2 through November 14th. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, Michael, you got over to Feinstein's 54 Below to see Christine Andreas in her latest show, And So It Goes, Love and Life and Love Lost and Found. <laughs> yes, she did it on uh, September 24th and 25th. I went to the first show, and it was absolutely fabulous. Um, she, I don't want to focus on her age, but uh, it's hard not to. I mean, I've been enjoying Christine since 1976 uh, in, when she made a brilliant Broadway debut in My Fair Lady in the lead <laughs> uh, after a, a tremendous search for someone to play that bravura role. And she had a really, really, really great career and continues to. Um, uh, but she, like Barbara Cook... <laughs> And uh, maybe Marilyn May, uh, they, they just, uh, it, it's hard to explain how, how they can preserve their voices so, so brilliantly. Her, her, her voice is absolutely pristine. And she, to me, she sounds exactly the same as she did 30 or 40 years ago. Mm. Um, uh, a, a wonderful show with her husband, Martin Silvestri, as music director, pianist, um, and a really great, uh, she also was able to show her versatility and tremendous range of, of types of music. Uh, these are the songs and the order in which she did them. Um, he Loves Me, which is her version of She Loves Me from, from that show. Uh, uh, my Romance, Falling in Love with Love, uh, To Keep My Love Alive from a Connecticut Yankee. Uh, here's That Rainy Day. 
from Carnival in Flanders, uh, that beautiful Amanda McBroom song, Errol Flynn, which always makes me cry and certainly did again on this occasion. Uh, Song of Bernadette by uh, Leonard Cohen, uh, et cetera. Somebody special. How are things in Glockamora? Um, then uh, she had a guest artist, this fellow, Mark Romano, who was in uh, uh, the last show that that I saw Christine do at 54, just before the pandemic. And he um, was in it because he has been doing workshops of a musical that Martin wrote about Casanova. And so he came out and sang a song from that. And then he and uh, Christine duetted on a beautiful mini medley of Some Enchanted Evening and Younger Than Springtime, just brilliantly arranged by Martin Silvestri. Um, then there was this, uh, the Billy Joel song, and so it goes, the John Lennon song, Grow Old Along With Me, uh, Take Care of This House mm. from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. It's a Wonderful World, the, uh, the, the song we're, we know best in Louis Armstrong's rendition. Uh, if I Ruled the World from Pickwick. <laughs> mm. And the final song was The Prayer, um, uh, music and lyrics by Donald uh, David Foster, Carol Bayer Sager, uh, Alberto Testa, and Tony Rennes. Uh, so it, it was it was a very eclectic pro- program, but Christine has the chops for it and the stylistic virtuosity for it. So it was just a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful show. All right. Uh, unfortunately, we've. Uh, missed it. It was only for a few days, yeah. and it's as closed already. But uh, I'll have a link to that in the sh- in the show notes as well, because uh, you can check out uh, Fifty Four Below, Feinstein's Fifty Four Below, and uh, hopefully get on their mailing list for when Christine comes back. Uh, Peter, you got over to the Jerry Orbach Theater at the Theater Center to see Chasing Jack. So tell us about this. Yeah, uh, John Anastasi uh, wrote it. Uh, he's a heart surgeon in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And uh, that's his day job. Uh, And um, so he's written a play about a heart surgeon who gets himself into a lot of trouble. I'm not going to say any more than that. But what I will say, it's a courtroom drama. I'll tell you that. But what I will say is it is truly expert in the way that he peels back layers to reveal his plot. Um, it's, it's so effective that you, the way he dispenses information, um, you, the famous, um, T.S. Eliot, uh, quote about, um, I have measured out my life in coffee spoons. It's almost as if he gives out details in coffee spoons, just a little <laughs> bit at a time, a little bit at a time, but everyone adds up and everyone is more compelling, shocking than the one you heard before truly extraordinary in that um so that's uh i'm not gonna as i say talk very much about the plot because i don't want to give too much away beyond the fact that it is a courtroom drama and the guy is in trouble um two problems as i see them one the judge is played as comic relief and um i do think that that needs rethinking he um he's very silly and uh i don't think judges are silly. Um, let me also say that a woman um, whose husband has died takes the stand. And admittedly, it's not as if the husband died the day before yesterday. Some years have passed, but she seems to be very well over it. And um, considering what's going on, I don't think she should be. 
Um, yeah, I, I really believe that she's, by the way, the the person who has brought the case to trial. She's the one who um, is not happy with uh, the doctor. But the thing is, you know, it, it, just as, you know, like people come in um, wearing like a neck brace when they're injured to make it look uh, to get sympathy. Um, she's much too matter of fact when she's up there telling about um, what happened to her husband. And um, I, I really think that uh, both um, John Anastasi and director Peter Lowy should take a look at the bad seed uh, in which Eileen Heckart has lost her child. Now, granted, mm. it's just happened. But uh, the 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 pain that she exhibits there is a masterclass in itself. And um, and while I don't think that the um, actress who's playing the role needs to be that distraught, because as I say, you know, even though time doesn't heal all wounds, it helps all wounds. Um, but uh, she's just too glib up there. Uh, my favorite um, performance was by Rachel Frost as uh, Taylor Barrett. Um, and there's a secret involved there, too. Again, he's very good at keeping secrets and knowing when to divulge them. So uh, but she's um, anyway, the um, defense attorney. And I think she's very skillful in playing that role. Uh, the other factor, um, I have to say, has nothing to do with the worth of the play. But whenever I watch these courtroom dramas, I get so frustrated at lawyers. I mean, it's just so interesting with things like, you know, answer yes or no. But, you know, things aren't that black and white in, white in real life. And mm. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's just so terrible how lawyers manipulate people to say what they want them to say as opposed to getting to the truth. So it really makes you very, very sad to see what happens in our justice system to people who want to tell you the whole story, the whole, you know, it's supposed to be the whole truth and nothing but the truth, but they won't let you tell the whole truth, <laughs> you know. So um, so it's very frustrating on that level. And uh, maybe that's why I've never seen even a single episode of Law and Order. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, Chasing Jack at the Jerry Orbach Theater, the Theater Center, uh, just uh, in Times Square and 50th Street. It's playing through November 14th, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So, uh, Michael, before we wrap up today, um, you wanted to talk a little bit about Bill Daniels. Yeah, not William Daniels, no. uh, <laughs> but this was a a really great actor who, who just recently died, um, who did all of his work in community theater on Staten Island. And he really was great. Um, I, I never worked with him personally, but he did a lot of shows there. And he um, uh, actually, my friend Ken Tirado wrote eloquently about him. So I'm just going to quote him. Uh, Ken wrote, Bill had an intensity that some people found intimidating and other actors jealously called overacting, but he was the real thing. Bill was one of the rare local actors whom I believe could have had a real career, quote unquote, as an actor. Um, Ken writes, I acted with Bill in some of the first shows I ever did here 40 years ago in the boys in the band. I met actors like Bob Ilya and Charlie Sullivan and Bill, who would become lifelong friends. But it was in directing Bill as the emotionally unhinged Reverend Shannon in Tennessee Williams, The Night of the Iguana, that we became close. Bill went on to do the fine work as the crazed pale in Lanford Wilson's mm. Burn This mm. and other shows. He was part of the great ensemble Paul Smith put together for Lanford Wilson's Fifth of July 
Craig Stobling used Bill Wonderfully in Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune and Les Liaisons Dangereuses. I should also note that many years ago, Bill directed Hamlet for Staten Island Shakespearean oh. Theater and actually cast a woman as Hamlet. Uh, I will miss Bill. He had recently retired from the Department of Marine and Aviation, where he worked as a ferry deckhand. The concept alone made me giggle. Bill (laughs) was a character. The concept of him being a deckhand was not real life to me. That was a humorous idea you would shout out to Nichols and May to do as an improv. Uh, so there again, someone who uh, whatever didn't have the ambition, didn't have the, the luck to become a professional actor, but he absolutely could have been. He was really very, very intense on stage. You can tell uh, just from the, those roles that I right. read. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you, you can imagine. And I, I'm um, putting we're putting in the show notes a photo of Bill and Night of the Iguana. Of course, you can't tell. Uh, the quality of his performance from the photo, but it's, I think it's a really wonderful shot. Uh, and it uh, also features quite a great set that uh, Ken Gerardo built for that show. So really, um, really uh, rest in peace, Bill Daniels. He was, he was quite something. All right. So before we wrap it up for today and get on to trivia and the musical moment, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of BroadwayRadio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to get us. iHeartRadio plays us. Tune in, Stitcher, Google Play. Anywhere that you can listen to finer podcasts, you'll find Broadway Radio's offerings. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes at broadwayradio.com as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today so peter do you have an answer to last week's trivia he appeared on two original cast albums on which a yawn is heard the first yawn wasn't done by him but by the star of the show who was making her illustrious broadway debut but yes on the other album he was the one to yawn during his one and only solo in the show who is he what are the two musicals and while you're at it tell me who the yawner was Carol Burnett was. She yawned at the end of the cast album of Once Upon a Mattress because she's going to sleep after having a real tough time of it, um, in which Jack Guilford appeared as the king. You can also hear him yawn during I'm Calm, his song and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Steve Bell was the first to get it, followed by Rob Johnston, Brigadude, Tony Janicki, Paul Witte, Stephen Brown, and Ingrid Gammerman. This week's question. We're looking for the names of two women who won Tony's on the same night. One for a musical, one for a play. Each of them ended her show's first act with a song. The same song. Explain that if you can. Hint, the musical closed before the play did, but only by a matter of days. What's the song, the two shows, and who are the two Tony winners? (laughs) Okay, if you have an answer for that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the right track. So, Michael, tell us about the musical moment for this week. Yeah, before we get to our closing musical moment, we just wanted to pay tribute to Jane Powell. Who, oh, yeah. Yeah, who yeah. I think uh, I think died before our last podcast, she but did, we just yeah. didn't, did not get to discuss. And she had one Broadway credit. <laughs> Irene, uh, the title mm-hmm. role in Irene, which she, <laughs> in which she she succeeded Debbie Reynolds, and um, 
uh, you know, and from all <laughs> accounts succeeded. <laughs> uh, yes, apparently. Yeah. Um, Debbie, uh, <laughs> apparently after the opening used to s- cut, uh, I'm always chasing rainbows mm-hmm. because she didn't feel comfortable with it. And mm-hmm. indeed, when I saw the show, uh, quite a bit after the opening, she, she did not sing it, but it sure came back in, uh, <laughs> for Jane Powell, who, you know, had a, had a really beautiful voice. Uh, and, uh, you know, going back to the dear Evan Hansen discussion in a, 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 a little bit, and of course this is stage, not film, but Miss Powell was, I think 40 <laughs> when she, when she took, played Irene and, and Debbie Reynolds wasn't that young either, but they just were, uh, well, I did, did not see Jane in, in that show, but uh, they were both magical on stage. I did get to see Jane off-Broadway in A Vow, a really great play, uh, which should probably be revived, an, an early play about gay marriage. Um, and uh, did either of you see that? No. Bill C. Davis's A Vow? Yeah. Yeah, yeah indeed, at George Street Playhouse, yes. Yeah. And uh, wait, I think that's I think it's Paul C. Davis. I'll have to double check that. Um, And then I also saw Jane. I got to see Jane in uh, uh, that incredible concert performance of 70 Girls 70 that the York Theater did. Mm. Oh, and Mm. also in um, uh, Cinderella, Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella at New York City Arbor years ago. So I was lucky enough to see her in several things. And she was uh, she was her performance in the film of seven brides for seven brothers is just classic and will endure forever. Um, so, so farewell to her. Um, but also more recently we lost Peter Palmer, um, who was a beautiful guy with a gorgeous voice and the story of his, uh, getting the role, the title role in Lil Abner first in the Broadway show. And then in in the movie uh, is one for the books. Uh, Apparently Dick Sean of all people uh, very early in her, in his career was, I believe assigned uh, to play Lil Abner on Broadway. Uh, The, the uh, creators had been searching for someone who really fit the role physically uh, as well as in, in every other way. And Abner is supposed to be the whole point of the story is that he's huge and muscular and, you know, not very smart. <laughs> um, and uh, it's, it's part of the plot. So they were looking for someone who was built like that, but could also sing it and act it. And they couldn't find anyone. And the closest one they could find was Dick Sean, who may have had the other stuff, but he, he wasn't really built in the way that the character is described. Um, And so they were going to do the show with him, but then um, Peter Palmer appeared on the Ed Sullivan show uh, as part of a, a a chorus because he was in a a, Marine or something like that. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And, 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 and the creators, you know, it was one of those, that's him. We found him. You know? <laughs> um, so, but in but then they had to get out of the contract with with Dick Sean, and it, I guess in those days it wasn't like it is now, where you have to pay somebody for the life of the contract when you fire them in a uh-huh. case like that. Uh-huh. Um, so they just gave him some kind of a payout, and and he uh, you know he went away, and it's, it's probably just as well because he really, as I said, did not did not fit the part perfectly. Whereas Peter Palmer could have been born. To play the role, um, you 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 can see that movie. It's it's readily accessible, and it's a, one of the most faithful 
film adaptations of a Broadway musical ever mm-hmm. of several other original cast members mm-hmm. are in it and mm-hmm. also other people who replaced and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so he, uh, he, he really, um, and then he, uh, he complained that he didn't really have much of a career after that. I think, I think partly because uh, what had gotten him that part maybe worked against him because he was so tall and so well-built six, three, and just really almost like a bodybuilder um, that there aren't that many roles, uh, you know, where you can cast someone like that, but he did make a number of wonderful recordings of operettas. um, So you can seek those out. Um, So we opened uh, today's podcast with Jane Powell singing. uh, I could have danced all night. Um, oh, sorry, <laughs> I just turned it on by mistake. Um, uh, and that's from an album that she did years ago of uh, Lerner and Lowe songs with with Jan Pierce and and uh, Robert Merrill. Uh, and that's a, a very rare album. So I thought I would pick that as as what to play to represent Jane. But uh, for Peter Palmer, um, this is from the original cast recording, not the film soundtrack. I had my druthers from the score of Lil Abner, which is a really, really wonderful show with an incredibly good score by uh, by Gene DePaul and Johnny Mercer. All right. So on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radio's This Week on Broadway. Bye bye. 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 If I had my druthers, I'd rather have my druthers than anything else I know. While you'd rather hustle, accumulate muscle, I'd rather watch daisies grow. While they're growing slowing, the summer breeze is blowing, my heart is overflowing, and so, if I had my druthers, I'd rather have my druthers than anything else I know. Contemplates it while watching the raindrops fall. I sit there for hours, developing my powers, of figuring how flowers get tall. If I had my brothers, my brother. If you could be anyone else in the whole world, who'd you rather be? Me? Just you? Just me. What's so special about being you? Ain't nothing special about it. It's just so handy, that's all. If I had my brothers, 
to choose from all the others. I'd rather be like I am. This thing called employment detracts from my enjoyment and tightens my diaphragm. While I'm doing nary a thing that's necessary, I'm happy as a cherry stone clam. If I had my brothers to choose from all the others, I'd rather be like I am, yes, ma'am. I'd rather be like I am. <laughs>